This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We have an opportunity for uh, a Q&A uh, from the floor. There are, there are two microphones here in the two aisles, and uh, we ask you to come forward and pose your questions. Now, I, I want to rob a line from a former colleague of mine here at UC San Diego, Sam Popkin, a a celebrated and accomplished oh, political here? scientist. Where's I don't Sam? know that Sam's here, but Sam evidently always used to say, there's no such thing as a stupid question, but there is such a thing as a lengthy question that goes on too long. So I'd ask you to be succinct for the sake of others who want to ask questions. Okay. This will be a very succinct question for, off, <laughs> for uh, Alex. It would be, what was the president's relationship with Spiro Agnew? Uh, I think not good, strictly political. Uh, you know, I mean, that's why he was chosen. He had been a pretty good governor. We, well, we, this is before we knew that he'd been taking those it was an interesting lunch bags full of money from contractors. But actually, it, I liked Agnew. He was a good guy. And uh, it's interesting that in cabinet meetings... The governors, former governors and lieutenant governors, are very good in cabinet meetings. Cabinet meetings are essentially about domestic politics, and they really take part, and they're very good. And he was one of the best in the cabinet uh, uh, meetings, uh, Spiro was. We're going we're gonna to trade back and forth here from the leftists but, to the rightists. Uh, but he was, that, yeah, I can't, you know, they weren't on basically friendly terms. Mr. Butterfield, I... Um I gathered that um, I gathered something new tonight that I hadn't seen in Mr. Woodward's book, and that was that you actually liked the president. Uh, that didn't come across in the book. It was a, a, to me, it was more a matter of of convenience and of doing your duty. Well, yeah. If you read the book, I was furious and wanted to leave the White House for exactly. the first. I mean, rude. I don't like rude or arrogant, and I don't think most of us do. And the fact that he was president didn't have that much to do with it. I was out of there. If I hadn't been filling in for Haldeman when he was back in California, uh, I, I would have, I just would have, I don't know what, I, and my family was still in Australia. I didn't know what to do, but I was ready to leave. And you, then he you, did. You were angry in, in, in uh, our uh, tape uh, discussions. I mean, at some point, it, it, it is in the book that you like. Uh, parts of Nixon, but then, and this is your word, that it had become a cesspool. The Nixon White House had become a cesspool, and you wanted out. Well, yeah, but not at that stage. It, it, well, I, later I, on. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. no, I, I would just say that by a tiny little thing, I had left this memo on his desk, and he had read the memo, and he had agreed with what I was doing after the rudeness. And the very fact that he signed that and and when I got it back, that was his. I realized that he was, uh, th that he was such a shy man in that moment, and that was his way of saying he was sorry. But you also, and there's also this touching, so, this touching story in the book about how solicitous he was of your daughter after she oh, yeah, and her mother was, had been that in that, was that a terrible couple years. car accident. Oh, I long since liked him a lot before yeah. that, though. Yeah. And w once I knew he got to like me, he complimented me through indirectly about the memos I wrote. He liked them. Then he had me doing extra things. He put me with his wife, Pat, because they didn't talk about anything. So I carried on. I did their voting for him and 
everything like that. And he, and then when he called Haldeman and me in and said, Bob, I think you should, you're getting caught up in the trivia of the Oval Office. Let Alex take your office and run the Oval Office day to day. And from that moment on, I was responsible for the president's official day. That was my main job. And, and Bob went down the hall to be further away and not worry about all these minute-to-minute -minute crises, which do happen, and he could be the thinker. The president said, I want you to be more like the assistant president. So then, of course, I, I love the guy, Nixon. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, if, if they like you, you, you like them back. But and, you had, I mean, as we did, spent days and weeks on this, you had very complex feelings about Nixon and some of the things he was doing and uh, your surmise about Watergate, because you were not in the Watergate meetings that were taped. No. You, they never called you in. But as you said, you absolutely were sure that Nixon and Haldeman were running the cover-up oh, sure. because they ran everything else. Yeah, well, I was, I was there. So every it, day, it, so. It, it, it is a, a very complex Let's go to feeling, a, series another, of feelings you had. Take another Nixon. question here. Uh, Bob, Please. is it your considered judgment uh, that the president would have survived uh, Dean and all the other revelations that you had dug up and the press was generally digging as deep as they he would have survived all that without the tapes yeah I, I the tapes sure. were critical because it was Dean's allegation and if you look at the polling at the time even after Dean made all those accusations I think uh, most people believed the president at that point oh, they and did. it was uh, there's a certain evidentiary purity to a tape recording and if, if you look at all... As opposed to your reporting? I thought it was pretty clear. Yeah, well, I, I mean, you, 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 reporting is not an engineer's drawing, unfortunately. Uh, you do the best you can with the sources you have. But the tapes, uh, I, I've, I've spent too many hours listening to them, uh, looking at transcripts and so forth. And what uh, the tragedy of Nixon is that he did not understand that the president's job is to establish what the next stage of good is for the people of the country. Nixon used, thought that the presidency was uh, something that was his to use as an instrument of personal revenge. Get the IRS, get the FBI, get so-and-so. I mean, the, the, your handwritten notes about me lie, uh, the, the war crime committed by uh, Lieutenant Kelly and his men in Vietnam is chilling because here 500 people were slaughtered by our troops. And Nixon's reaction is, who blew the whistle? Let's tail him. Let's discredit Mike Wallace, who did a piece on 60 Minutes. Let's discredit uh, Life magazine, Time magazine that wrote about yeah. it. And uh, you, you read those notes, your handwritten notes, and you, ju you just say, where, why is this man, this president, not got a sense? And, and this is something a month or two ago you have to give President Obama credit for. When that hospital was bombed, uh, accidentally, Obama went public and apologized personally. Uh, 
Nixon, his whole attitude toward me lie. It's it's a challenge to my Vietnam War strategy. Yeah, and let's go get these people. I mean, there is there is just this the dog that doesn't bark. On the Nixon tapes, unfortunately, no one says what would be good for the country. What does the country need? It was always about Nixon. Please. Uh, It's been recognized tonight that this is still pertinent. Therefore, I ask, has there been uh, a new recognition of the human condition, or did something discreetly change with Nixon? Uh, Are people different nowadays than they used to be, or why suddenly are we shocked by this sort of thing? Oh, gee, wow. I don't know. You got are people different and then, now? Uh, I suppose I'd also be curious about your um, perspective on the role technology has played in this and its continued pertinence. Us being suspicious of our leaders. Well, it, it, I mean, I think Watergate certainly. We talked a little bit about this in the in the formal session. That Watergate certainly has left us with a, a lingering suspicion of our leaders. I mean, your point, your point, Bob, about Dean's testimony, right? Dean testifies, I mean, this incredibly damning testimony, but still the residual momentum is to believe the president, not John Dean. Absolutely. But then the tapes, this goes back to the, the, the immediately prior question, yeah. what the tapes reveal, then rip that away. And we've been living with the consequence of that ever since. Usually the instinct nowadays for people to distrust what the president says rather than to trust what the president for, says. Uh, the first book I did on President Obama, Obama's wars, I went to interview him and brought two tape recorders because you don't want to have an equipment malfunction <laughs> when you're interviewing the president. And uh, his press secretary then said, oh, uh, kind of joking, oh, oh, Woodward knows a lot about <laughs> tapes tape in the Oval Office. <laughs> And then Obama said, can you imagine that Nixon taped everything in the Oval Office? And it was kind of like the suggestion was almost, imagine if we taped everything here. (laughs) And uh, it it was utter astonishment at it. And Alex's point that, and and this is evident from the tapes, if you listen to him, Nixon... (coughs) Didn't care. I mean, he would just say, oh, go break in, blow the safe. We're going to, uh, I, I mean, if, the the things that are said on the tapes, uh, I guess you probably wanted to go up to him a couple of times and put your hand over his <laughs> yeah, mouth and yeah, say, yeah, you know, yeah. don't say that. Don't say mm-hmm. that. But he did. But Please. isn't that because it's an imperial presidency? I mean, didn't you say that? My question, good evening, sir. My question is what a statement you made during the presentation about power in D.C. and zero-sum. If someone gets power, someone else loses power. And I was wondering if that's truly what you meant, or did you mean power continues to increase, it's just sometimes one's power becomes more, the other power doesn't have to become less, he's just not as powerful as the person who's gaining power. Well, I I mean, just in general, I think that there is an incredible and increasing concentration of power in the presidency now. And uh, Obama has more power than Nixon, uh, believe it or not. And uh, presidents can uh, define the times. It It was the Nixon era. It's the Obama era, whether you like it or not. And the reach... 
and capacity to influence events that a president has, uh, we, I don't think we fully understand, but it's an extraordinary office. Well, it makes sense, though. The president can go any place he wants in Air Force One. He can travel. He can get the networks to put him on television or radio. He can. He can. He has more power than they do. And then, so many people don't want to get completely crosswise with the, with the White House. So they, they, they have always. It is. It is tough if you're going to go to war with the White House. You are probably going to lose. That was the general thinking. Uh, until, until the tapes, and you know, you disclosed the tapes in July '73. Nixon stayed in office another. 13 months, and it was the Supreme Court who had to order him to turn them over, and then there was the smoking gun tape uh, and so forth. But, you, you know, you're so right. The president has this power. And that, what, one of the many things that surprised me is your description of Nixon going and having that dinner alone that Manola, his manservant, prepared for him. And he could have dinner with anyone in the world. Anyone. (laughs) He could call. uh, And, uh, you know, presidents, if you look at what they do, they they have an interesting group of people over for dinner. And Nixon decided to have dinner with Nixon. No one else. (laughs) Astonishing. Please. Yeah. About a decade ago, I did... um, study of the Nixon policy in the Middle East. And I would go to the National Archives uh, to see what has been declassified in the meantime. And one uh, time the archivist dropped 10,000 pages of transcripts of Henry Kissinger in front of me. And when I looked at it, I discovered that Henry Kissinger also taped all his conversations. And in fact, one of the most interesting uh, memos was a conversation between him and Edgar Hoover. Because Kissinger, who taped himself, now became paranoid, thinking maybe somebody else was taping him. So he had Hoover check the recording system, and Hoover assured him that that was not the case. He was the only one taping himself. My question is, uh, where did Kissinger get the idea? Did, uh, was he one of the people who knew that Nixon was taping himself? Was he doing Kissinger. it independently? Kissinger, uh, Kissinger didn't know, Hmm? Kissinger did Kissinger, Kissinger didn't know. No, oh, yes, oh, Kissinger uh, had a secretary listen in and yeah. take oh, notes no. of all of his yeah, conversations. But, but he didn't too. know about. And he then didn't the know FBI about the was probably office. doing it. There are probably three or four different transcripts yeah. of all of these conversations. I think there, uh, just like now, there sure. were uh, very little. But privacy. Kissinger didn't know about the Oval Office equipment. No, no, he didn't. Yeah. But but what. You said, Alex, and I think this is important, Nixon started as president uh, saying, any time I have an important meeting, one of the aides will sit in and take notes and give me a memo of what happened. And Kissinger was way behind, owed all kinds of memos. Nixon looked at some of these, and some of them were pretty good, but some of them were awful, and it depended on who the aide was. And... Uh, so he said, you know, that what we want to do is make a perfect record, and that was, led to the tapes, didn't it? Yes, and when we started the tapes, they continued the old system. So we had double, we had people sitting in, taking mental notes and writing little anecdotal reports immediately afterwards, turning those into me. I was the keeper of those memos for the president's file. 
and, and it was pointless because we had the tapes going from on. The, from the system. It, it was like he had this. Let's uh, go to this gentleman, please. Hello, Alex. Uh, and I know in talking with you, you were proud of being in the White House. And you expressed to me that you did like Richard Nixon, at least parts of him. So changing the subject a little bit, what part of being in that White House, that administration, were you most proud of? We've been dwelling on some of the negatives. So I think the question is, well, what are the positives for you? I don't know. I did ask to leave. And, <laughs> no, I asked to leave in December as soon as the first four years was over. I... I, I was, it was a wonderful place to work. It's a joyful place to work. It's beautiful. It's fun to go to work at the White House. And a lot of interesting things happen during the day. And uh, that's where the smoke is, you know, right there in the White the action. House. So, so, yes. The action. So you're right at the, right. At the center. But uh, I realized that uh, I could get in trouble if I stayed longer. So I went to Haldeman, my sole benefactor. It was difficult to do and asked if I could leave at the end of those four years that and uh, yeah. and yeah. so i did so i wasn't all that crazy about it uh, yes um mr woodward you you brought up that we should learn something from this and at the same time you talked about your military career and the the breaking of faith by the commander-in-chief with those who served him and then you explained uh, Obama's view about who would be foolish enough to tape everything in the, in the White House. Uh, but that's not quite what you said. And, and if I go back just a few years ago when the Johnson tapes became public, one of the most chilling pieces of tape was he's talking to Russell, uh, the uh, uh, House uh, Speaker, and he says... This war, we're killing our own boys. We're getting nowhere. It's going nowhere. Uh, and if I don't continue the war, the conservatives will eat me alive. So I've got a question for you. Johnson, according to Alex, had a voluntary taping system. He would tape his own. Uh, Obama has said what fool would tape, all of, would, would tape himself in the White House. And Nixon is a guy who submitted himself to this extraordinarily foolish idea of taping everything that he said, when we vet the next president, which is the better personality and how do we judge it? <laughs> do you think the next president should be required to tape? No, that's what I'm asking. No, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, I think it's, uh, look, it breaks trust, as Alex pointed out, when a head of state would come to talk to Nixon, the idea that there was a secret tape being made uh, you know, is is abhorrent. Oh, it's yeah. it's not the way you can deal with people or should deal with people. But you know, I think there's uh, uh, at dinner we t we talked about this, Michael, and I, it really struck me about how you take and learn from Nixon because we should learn from him. Uh, and the question I have, and I cited this at, at dinner, that uh, Charlie Rose interviewing Putin, uh, the Soviet, uh, the Russian leader, and uh, there's no, that's right, there's no Soviet yeah, yeah, right. anymore. A little Freudian uh, slip there. Though so Putin right. regrets it, that there's no Soviet. And Charlie Rose was interviewing Putin and said, now you were in the KGB, and there's a saying that once a KGB officer, always 
a KGB officer. And Putin's answer was magnificent. He said, not a single stage of our life passes without a trace. And that's all he said. And it was an interesting way to say, yes, I'm still a KGB officer. But he's right. Not a phase of our life passes without leaving a trace. And what we in the media need to do is learn all of those traces, all of those stages of the people who might be president. You know, just one, just following up on the, the question, you know, what, what do we want the next president to do? Should he or she put a taping system in the White House or not? I think what, what I've been hearing Bob and Alex talk about this evening is uh, whatever his accomplishments and certain uh, positive attributes Richard Nixon was consumed with using power and leadership for rather venal and mean-spirited personal ends. And I think all of us would aspire to have leaders for whom leadership is about building better institutions or a better nation or a better community, not about building better selves. And we don't really have a way to figure that out in a presidential campaign. I mean, in the presidential campaign, in the so-called silly season, we're not really learning about those qualities of character that Bob and Alex have been talking about. But I think what we have to do in the media is a... uh, We did this for George Herbert Walker Bush in uh, 1988 when he was running for president. Three of us spent months and did a 20,000-word series on... Bush at the CIA when he was CIA director. Uh, All the people he was in skull and bones with at Yale, what they said about him. Uh, What he did as UN ambassador and as vice president. And if you look look at that, it, it tells you who George Bush is. And there's some positive and there's some negative things. Uh, And I, I really think we have an obligation to do that so when people go to vote uh, a year from now that they're going to, you know, maybe they haven't read it, maybe they haven't seen it, maybe they don't care about it, but at least it w- should be available to people to have a full excavation and in-depth profile of every stage of everyone's life and that includes the Democratic candidates and the Republican candidates. Yes, Mr. Butterfield. Um, I wanted to know if after that Monday when you testified, if Richard Nixon ever made any attempt to communicate with you again. Uh, I guess that's a good question. No, he didn't, and, and I didn't expect it. He wouldn't do that. Uh, also, when I left the White House, uh, Bob thinks it's strange. Uh, I didn't think it... Uh, I didn't go in and say goodbye, and I don't think anyone would have done that. Bill Sapphire was very close to, and he didn't do it either. You don't want to, Nixon wouldn't have liked that. He wouldn't want to go through that little thing. Not his style. So So you just leave with 20 boxes of (laughs) documents. Please. Um. (laughs) This question is for Mr. Woodward. Um, My question is regarding investigative journalism. Um, Do you feel, what would your advice be for future investigative uh, journalistic reporters? And also, um, 
would you think that investigative journalism holds our leaders to account and should continue? I, I think we need more of this uh, in-depth reporting, and uh, the news organizations have less money, and so they don't have the people to do it. Happily, uh, the founder and CEO of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, bought the Washington Post, uh, and he is now the owner, and I talked with him about this, and he has assured the editors of the Post that they will have the resources necessary to do these full profiles of the candidates. And, you know, just uh, without diverting too much, you think you understand what happened, and this is my point about Alex's story, that you think history's over, but it's not. And you think you have it right. And I remember uh, the day, it was a Sunday morning, that Gerald Ford went on television. He'd been president one month and announced that he was giving Nixon a full pardon for Watergate. And, but for uh, any offenses he may have committed. He may have committed. Against I mean, just United a blanket States. pardon. Yeah. And I was asleep in a hotel room, and my colleague Carl Bernstein called me and said, Have you heard? And I said... I was asleep. I haven't heard anything. And Carl, who then and still has the ability to say what occurred in the fewest words with the most drama, said, I'm going to quote him, the son of a bitch pardoned the son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And even I got what happened. (laughs) And I thought... Uh, it, ah, it's the final corruption of Watergate, that the guy at the top who was behind it all gets off, 40 people go to jail, and I think this was demonstrated in the 76 campaign two years later when Ford lost to Jimmy Carter because of the pardon and the suspicions about it. 25 years after that, I did a book called Shadow about the legacy of Watergate in the presidencies of Ford through Clinton and uh, interviewed Ford endlessly and got all the legal memos and had the luxury of time and discovered. uh, And Ford explained it to me uh, why he pardoned Nixon. And he said it wasn't for Nixon, it wasn't for himself, but it was for the country Mm. that he had to get Nixon and Watergate off the front page. In a very dramatic way, he did it, and I thought, gee, 25 years earlier, I thought it was the ultimate corruption, and if you look at it through the lens of history and look at it in a neutral way, what looked this way looks like actually an act of courage. We're almost out of time, but we have two questions. All right, so be be brief, and we'll we'll try to answer these two last questions, please. Uh, Gentlemen, given your experience... Is Edward Snowden a traitor or a hero? Let's ask the audience. (laughs) How many people think Snowden is a hero? Raise your hand. How many think he's a traitor? How many are unsure? Okay, a third, a third, a third. Third, yeah, that's what it looked like. What it looked like. Uh, My question is for Southern uh, California has changed. (laughs) (laughs) My question is for Mr. Butterfield, and I was just wondering. uh, It was posed earlier. 
um, uh, why did you wait so long? And the physical documents, how did you get them out of the White House? Was it why did you wait one so at a time long? or and a how big did you truck? Get the documents out? Uh, I stole the documents. <laughs> no, I, I, the, I, a couple of documents. There, I don't. There weren't thousands of. There were there were thousands of documents, maybe, but they weren't all classified documents. There might be eight or ten classified documents. Some of them were studies, so they were long. But I took some of those things uh, to substantiate the book that I was going to write, to have that material. The book I finally, finally wrote was a memoir, and I didn't have anything classified in that memoir. I don't think there's anything in the thing that you read, is there? Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, but what but, was but, interesting? But that's why that's why I took it. You were in charge of keeping others who left the White House staff from taking documents, right? And it's only the cop on the beat who knows how to get around the system. And so you just drove up in your car and your wife in no, her car. No, the wife. I don't know where you got that. My wife from you. Didn't come <laughs> but, My wife didn't okay. drive up and haul. Okay. But yeah. anyway, uh, 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 yes, I did. When you you would do that, you'd go to this guy's office when he's packing his bag, and you tell him, I'm just here to make sure you don't take any government stuff in a kind of a joking way. This guy is someone I know, and I've been... But I don't stand there and watch him and help him pack. I come back a few hours later, and that's the way it's done. And everybody... This is no excuse for me, but there are some mitigating factors. And everybody takes... Stuff. If you don't, especially scholars like Henry and and uh, Moynihan and those guys, you know, professors, they're going to write books. And uh, uh, that's true. I, it, it's what I call the box in the attic theory. Yeah. That somebody takes a box of documents and put it puts it in the attic. You just had more documents and you put them in the basement. I would like to say just one one thing that's uh, often misunderstood about me and. Bob mentions I was conflicted and all that sort of thing. Uh, I really liked Nixon quite a bit. I had come to like him in those three and a half years after I had the office right next to his. I was with him all the time. I liked him. So it was hard for me. I didn't want to be the guy to, to, to finger him. I hoped I wouldn't be called. And, uh, but a year later, I was the first. Most people don't know that I testified testified twice. A year later, exactly July of 74, I was the first of eight witnesses to go before the Judiciary Committee during its deliberations of impeachment. And in that session, it lasted ten and a half hours, and uh, I was cross-examined by the famous Boston attorney, criminal attorney, who had come down to, to rescue Nixon. And I had had a change of mind over the period of that year, I think primarily, it's my guess primarily, because good friends of mine, these young guys that I really liked, I liked everybody at the White House, just about. I mean, it was fun working there. Maybe two exceptions. Ziegler, I thought was, I wasn't crazy about Ziegler, and Rosemary Woods resented me from the start, and she was just difficult to work with. But a hell of a lot of nice people. I had fun there. I liked it. But a year after I was at the FAA for that whole year, for two years at the FA, but in that first year, I saw these young guys like Bud Krogh, who is a prince of a guy, and uh, uh, even Kalmbach, who wasn't a young guy, but these people who... Dwight Chapin. Dwight Chapin, well-meaning people, go off and do time. 
and marriages uh, broke up, and it was just a terrible time. And I blamed Nixon. Uh, I had quite a change of mind, and, and I showed that in my testimony before the Judiciary Committee. And when the Judiciary Committee were deliberating this, and that was, that's when everybody, that was good TV, hearing about what they had to say, and that woman with a uh, deep voice uh, from Texas, I forget what Barbara, it, Jordan. Barbara Jordan, talking about the Constitution. And those, <laughs> but some of those people were mentioning my name and my, my testimony. But Mr. Butterfield said this, and that's when Rose Woods was calling me each night and saying, you son of a bitch, you're taking down the greatest president this country ever had. But hurt, you don't like to hear that, but I was of a different end, as Bob said in the book. I did cheer. I did cheer. I, I can't believe I did. When Nixon resigned. When Nixon resigned. Yeah. I was watching that on TV in my office, and here were my friends, some of them sobbing over in the East Room because he's leaving. If you're close to a guy, I sort of understand yeah. it, but I, that's well, you're right. I was an outsider. I wasn't a, I'm not a politician. No, but, the, but the bottom line is that inevitably uh, you were conflicted and, you know, uh, there, was, there were appealing sides to his personality and there was this criminality. But that's the problem. The office of the President of the United States is not a... Personally, it, it technically is personally held by one person, but it's really a bestowed trust from the Constitution, and it entails a responsibility to higher purpose and some sort of straight talk and uh, caring about the people in this country, not just your own political career. Well, and that was the corruption of Richard Nixon. No, uh, I think we're going to have to uh, bring this to a close. I, I would say, you know, Bob made a comment. You told a story about Vladimir Putin, about how, you know, perceptions change. And then you talked about Ford. Uh, you were interviewing Ford and how it changed your perception of pardons, of, uh, of, of his pardon of Nixon. And what we're learning tonight, you know, history, understanding it, writing it, wrestling with it. Every generation has to make its own terms with the past. And uh, I want to thank both of you for allowing us to continue in that, uh, in that struggle this evening. It's been great. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.